Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, history fans, and welcome to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast. Come with us as we delve into historical topics, big and small, weird and obscure, earth-shattering, and maybe a little spooky. It's your host, Lauren. And Melissa. (laughs) Today's episode, we are covering three ghost ships. Three spooky, abandoned, creepy ghost ships. That's an understatement for what we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) Where'd they come from? Did they run aground? Are they just floating in the waters? Can you see them? That That's a really good one for our this episode, actually, that question. <laughs> it's perfect. But before we do that, we have... We have your weird history for today. So... I, I don't really know that fax machines are used in as much today because we've got cell phones and instant messaging. And email. Email. I mean, you still have printers, but I don't know that we really have fax machines anymore. But those of you old enough to know what a fax machine is, you've known they've been around for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Or even longer <laughs> than you might think. <laughs> so commercially, fax machines really came into... It, Came about in the, the this in the sixties and were pretty prevalent through the sixties, seventies, especially into the eighties, into the nineties, and maybe sort of died out around the early two thousands once cell phones and instant messaging and such came out. You mean AIM? <laughs> oh, even before AIM, because this is sending pictures. But do you, did you know that the first fax machine was actually created back in eighteen forty eight? I didn't know they could do that back then, but dang. (laughs) Right. I'm like, wait, you're doing what? This is even pre-Civil War. This is pre-electric lights. Just wow. What? The Victorians were really innovative. Go Victorians. definitely say that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had a whole palace dedicated to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the original fax machine, and we'll have pictures linked in our show notes, was invented by Scottish inventor Alexander Bain, who lived from 1810 to 1877. And he originally was a telegraph operator. He actually installed railway telegraph lines from Edinburgh to Glasgow before he moved over to America. And he also was the first person to invent the electric clock. Again, for the light bulbs. He also invented an electric telegraph machine, which he used that basis to create the original first fax machine, which used a clock and two pendulums that were synced by the clock, which scanned line by line a message that was electronically transmitted by negative and positive pulses onto pins, then sent to its receiver, to which then the person on the other end would have an electrochemically sensitive paper to which the message would then be stamped onto and then produced and then read. It sounds complicated. It couldn't go for very, very long. I 
Sounds yeah. like an extremely long message, and it took a while. Considering and a, today's technology, well, it didn't take off. He had a patent for it, so but it didn't take off because he couldn't keep the the pendulums in sync um. to make the message coherent. So it didn't take off. But he definitely has the patent for the first ever fax machine in 1848, which still blows my mind. Uh, the first commercial telefax service was in 1861. At one point, Bain had gone back to fix the problem with his, his, his fax machine. But unfortunately, about 10 years or so afterwards, he, was, he had been beaten to it by another inventor who had updated uh, more or less his original patent. But Giovanni Caselli had the first telefax service from Paris to Lyon, 11 years, still before the telephone had even been invented. Which, in case anyone was wondering, that would be Alexander Graham Bell, I believe in the 1880s. By the late 1840s, he had, Bain had actually updated his telegrapher's fax machine to be able to write approximately 325 words per minute which was eight times faster than what the telegraph could do. But unfortunately, it was unreliable. The images were really poor quality, so the telegraph was still in use for a lot longer. But well, it mean, only... The first ever of anything never works the way you want it to. You, true. You have to work at it and experiment with it and to perfect it. True, but think how popular the telegraph was, and only eight years after that did he come up with the fax machine. I mean, it's also not well known that he did create that version of the fax machine. Yeah, but it's really interesting to look at. There are oh, diagrams yeah. we'll have. And then the interesting thing is, so this is obviously 1924. We already had the light bulb. Electricity was massively big. Telephones had already been invented. Technology as we know it today had really started to take off by then. The first wireless fax was sent using radio waves in 1924. Richard Ranger actually sent an image of President Calvin Coolidge through a wireless fax. Huh. And also that same year was also the first color fax sent by a man named Herbert Ives. So the fax machine goes back a lot farther than you might think it would. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That is, it's very weird. But again, it didn't cool. take off until the '60s commercially. Mm -hmm. But then again, computers had been around for a lot longer than we think they have been too, and they didn't be commercial until a lot longer after their use as well. That's true too. But back to today's main topic. Now we're on to the spooky stuff. Ooh, this is the good stuff. The good stuff. The good stuff. So today we're going to talk about three ghost ships. Ooh. Three. And we're going to start with the Lady Lovibond. Spooky, spooky, spooky. So, know about you, but I got that in February 13th, 1748. In England, in particular, somewhere around Kent, it left a point. The Lady Lovibond set sail down the Thames River on its way down the Thames River to the Atlantic to head to Portugal. Yes. And that the captain, captain, I had Simon Reed, you had, didn't you have a different one? Or am I thinking of another one of the ships? <laughs> well, we have three today, so. Probably another ship. New Simon Boy Peel is what I had. You, Simon, you had Simon Reed. You, you do, you will see two, uh, Simon Peel and Simon Reed on different, sources that you might find. I don't yeah. see that's that's a pretty big difference in last name. I don't think it is other than the two first the one first letter and the one last letter. E and E is in the middle, so I guess. I guess. I mean Simon Reed decided to bring his new wife with him as it was like a honeymoon. They had just gotten married. Maybe this would be their honeymoon down into Portugal. And uh foul play ran aground. No, well, that's an understatement <laughs> for what happened. But keep in mind, this is also 1748, and it sailors have always typically been superstitious, and generally women, not only when the ships were maybe docked mm -hmm. for service and repair and food, could women come aboard, whether it be relatives of the sailors, their wives, children, or 
ladies of the night, possibly. But mm. it was mm. superstitious to have a woman on board to sail with you. Yeah. As it was thought that women brought bad luck mm. aboard ships. Yeah. So this is a captain of a schooner, I believe. Yeah. And three-mast schooner. A three-mast schooner. Sure. And bringing schooner. his new new bride aboard as a celebration honeymoon on their travel to Portugal. Hmm. They got the smartest idea. Bad luck ensues. Well, not only that, they're, the same day it sets sail, they're se- the crew is celebrating uh, the marriage of the captain and only the bosun, who is the helmsman, the helmsman and the first mate... John Rivers are dealing with steering the ship. Yes. And, well, John Rivers was supposedly in love with Annetta, Captain Reed's brand new wife. And while everyone was celebrating the marriage, John was steering the ship, which... No, the helmsman was steering the ship. Or John was so jealous of all the celebrating that was going on below decks because he was a rival for the wife. He'd taken a belaying pen, which is a re- just a really big wooden pen used on board for, uh, for the sails, and beat the helmsman to death with it and tossed him overboard, then grabbing the helm oh. of the ship mm-hmm. and steering it into the Goodwin Sands in the English Channel, causing it to run aground, killing all hands on board. Yeah, he he basically sank the ship out of jealousy. Yes. And just to give you a little bit about the Goodwin Sands so you know what you're talking, what we're talking about, it's a, an area of sandbank where at low tide, the sands are exposed. However, when it's high tide and you're sailing a ship, you can't see the sands and you can't see how close they are to the surface of water. So it's actually known that this is an area where it, it's a ship graveyard because so many people have run, a, run, it, run their ships into the Goodwin Sands. In fact, since 1298, it's been recorded that over a thousand shipwrecks have wrecked on this area of the English Channel. Yeah. Well, not only that, this is an area where there are a lot of storms and it's very choppy water. It's also nine miles of sand. That's true, too. It's a very long stretch of sandbank. Yeah. It, it, it's a huge stretch of sandbank, and, well, John knew where it was, all right. <laughs> I mean, he ran the ship into the Goodwin Sands out of jealousy, <laughs> amazingly enough. The um, surprising thing about the ship is it's said to be seen every 50 years on... On the day it sank. Correct. Which, so. keep in mind, record said it was Friday, February the 13th. Mm. We'll get into wow. that. Good luck day there. Hmm. So the first reporting would have then been in 1798, which was said to have been the ship, the Edinburgh. And the captain reported hearing celebrations coming from this wrecked ship, to which he actually even sent lifeboats out. Yeah. Well, he thought he was going to crash into it. I have oh, that's right. A was, source yeah. that he saw a three-mast uh, schooner, schooner, whatever you want to call it. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It's schooner. Three-mast schooner and veered off so that he wouldn't run into it. And at the same time, he heard mass celebration coming from the lower decks of the ship, sent people out for a rescue mission, and they came back empty handed going, what? There's there was nothing out there. Right. So th- they thought that this could have been the Lady Lovabond. Mm-hmm. And then the same, a similar thing happened in 1848 with the ship The Deal, who also sent lifeboats out to the wreck that they saw of a three-mast schooner in the English Channel. And when they came back, they were like, dude, nothing was there. Yeah. And then the last time the Lady Lovabon is supposedly said to have been seen is in 1948. Mm-hmm. And it was even said during that time, she gave off an eerie glow. I've heard white glow. I've heard green glow. Either way, a glowing ship, kind of creepy. Just a little bit. Just a tad creepy. Imagine if this was at night. This was probably like night sightings too. Well, there, there it goes with that because in 1998, it said that because of 
the history and the stories and the sightings of the Lady Love of Bond since 1798 and 19... 98 or 48? 98 was the first one. 98 was the first sighting right. you're talking about. I was thinking right. 48 when she actually sank. So that in 1998, crowds came to the Goodwood and Sands area mm-hmm. to try to witness the yep. appearance of the Lady Love of Bond, but nothing happened. Yeah. Nothing came. That There was no ghost ship. Nothing, nobody heard anything. Nothing happened. Yeah. Well, I kind of speculate that it became too much of a spectacle. The Lady Love of Bond was like, nope. I'm not going to give you a show. And also, you know, maybe because these people were standing on the Goodwin Sands rather than standing on a ship in the sea, maybe you have to see her from the sea as a shipmate. It also is surmised that it's not real. That's true. So, I, I, mean, I did a little looking into it, and there are actually two researchers named George B. and Michael Goss. Mm-hmm. And George B., I hope... I may be pronouncing that wrong, but he's actually a documentarian and researcher. He's mostly known for his Titanic documentaries and, and books about the Titanic. And they, together, they were able to f- find that there are no primary sources in referencing the Lady Lovabon prior to 1924, which led them to believe that it was a made-up story printed in and around Valentine's Day, or at least as a Valentine's Day story of tragic love. Well, I mean, it is a ghost ship with no evidence that she ever truly existed. Well, there's also the date, too, because I looked into it, and it said February, Friday, February the 13th. Yeah. And there was never a Friday the February the 13th of that year. Back then... England was still on the Gregorian calendar. They wouldn't change over until the late 1700s. You mean they were on the Julian calendar? Julian calendar, I'm sorry. They, they wouldn't change over to the Gregorian calendar until the late 1700s. And the Julian calendar, that was a Saturday, the 13th. And then if you reference it in the Gregorian calendar, it was a Tuesday. So the closest would have been Julian calendar, but it wasn't a Friday. Yeah. And then I don't think that the superstition of Friday the 13th was... I don't really, think it existed then. It didn't exist or it really wasn't as prevalent like it is today. Okay. No. I mean, it's it's a huge thing today, which is interesting, but it is what it is. But... Well, that's our first ghostly tale. I mean, tragic love story. That gets, hits you in the feels every time. All you do is got to look at is Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. To know that the most tragic love story of all time, or the most famous tragic love story of all time, I don't know if it's the most tragic. I think it's definitely one of the most famous. Definitely but it is Shakespeare, so Shakespeare is typically second to the Bible. <laughs> what? It's just so true. <laughs> but the next ship we have for you is the. Schooner Jenny. The SS Jenny. So the Jenny was a a schooner that had been launched from the the Isle of Wight, which I did look into and has been a shipyard there for quite some time. And it is said that she she was navigating around the Drake Passage in Antarctica. And we'll actually have maps in the show notes to show you where the Drake Passage is, and I believe that some of those articles will also mention sort of the weather around the Drake Passage. So it was supposed to be... Frigid cold. But not just frigid cold, one of the most dangerous passages in the entire world. It's incredibly dangerous. Let me put it this way. It's a passage of water that brings together the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans that lies literally between the Cape Horn of South Africa in Antarctica. South America. I mean, South America. South Africa. What is wrong with me? Cape Horn's over in South Africa. Whatever. South America. Cape whatever it is. Tierra del Fuego area. Yeah. I am so lost right now in my own (laughs) self. But the Cape of South America and Antarctica. Mm -hmm. So. Very cold. Lots of icebergs. Incredibly stormy, very treacherous. I mean, even Magellan, I don't know that he necessarily slid around the Drake Passage specifically, but Magellan had a hard time getting around down there, too. I I don't think he ever made it. No, Magellan was the first person to circumnavigate the world. No, I mean, 
He had difficulties, not made it. I don't know what's wrong with <laughs> she, she had launched her voyage to the Drake Passage in 1823, and the whaling ship, the Hope, which I think is a slightly funny name for this story, found <laughs> was out in the Drake Passage in around 1840. And they came across this battered ship coming out of essentially an ice wall, but the ship was a little had some wear on it, but they're like, oh, there's this other ship. We weren't expecting another ship. So they decided to board it to check it out. Well, from a distance, they from, saw that it had... Crew, there was some crew, crew on, 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 the, on board, and while they, they, they kept calling, standing. they kept, yeah, they were standing at attention on deck, and they kept calling out and calling out, and nobody was answering their calls. So they decided, something's a little fishy. Let's board this and see if they need help. And upon much closer inspection, they find all hands on the upper deck frozen, frozen. in place. And the story also goes that the, the captain of the, the Hope decides to go down, down below decks, and he sees the captain in his quarters at his desk, and he's calling out to the captain, and the captain's not acknowledging him. And again, upon closer inspection, the captain's frozen. The captain's not just frozen, he's frozen at his desk, pen still frozen and hand writing in his log. Yeah. And then the log itself states May 4th, 1823, no food for 71 days. I am the only one left alive. Yeah. And not only that, it, they actually ended up finding the captain's wife and dog. Yeah, at all hands, all, all was it 10? Seven crew members. Yeah. All, every crew member on board the ship had been frozen in place. Yeah, but the wife and dog are not really crew members. It, it still counts as all hands. Yes, but they found the wife and the dog also frozen in place in the captain's cabin. And for the captain to be the last one to die when your wife is with you, yeah. that, that's sad. That means you have to watch that. At the end of it, I have it that the captain of the Hope actually decided to take the logbook from the Jenny and try to return it to its owners. I mean, this is, what, 40 years later, they could still be alive. Or 17, depending. I, I had it at 1840. It was discovered 17 years after they launched. I had 1860. We have different... Again, vary, and we'll get to the, a little more on that later, too. <laughs> and they, I have it that they left the hope and uh, they reboarded the hope and the hope left and sailed off and left the Jenny, Jenny just floating along the sea. Yeah, I, I, I read that one story stated that the captain decided to bury all hands aboard at sea, which meant sea burial. And then another said that, and I'd agree with this one, that coming across an abandoned ship nearly at least two decades after she had set sail on her voyage and all hands frozen. Bad luck. Bad luck. Scary, spooky, shock, horror, anything you want to call it. Creepy. So I would not put it past a ship to be, especially at that time in 1840, really, dude... This I is. Believe. We're, we're just gonna get off we're of this gonna, and go. We're just gonna grab this log book and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, good luck to you, poor souls. Yeah, and it's, goodbye. <laughs> it's it said that it's just like, nope, we're gonna nope out of here, and you're just gonna go on your little way. Yeah, and I don't have it that it's been seen since, but it could still be sailing the seas today, or could be frozen in a block still. Who knows? I also have written that in 1862, there was a German geographical magazine called The Globus which published a story of the Hope's discovery, mm. which they state was in 1840. Mm. But outside of that, and I don't even have records saying that that was an actual published story either, we don't know of any additional sightings of the Jenny and around the Antarctic. Given it's really treacherous, if it was true, she probably... She probably got stuck again in the ice. <laughs> got, got stuck or got caught up in a storm or hit an iceberg and flooded. But going back to the sources, very. Who knows? Exactly. And going back to the log, 
Most sources I found said May 4th. But I've also heard saw sources that said May 23rd. And even a couple that said January 17th. That's a totally different month than the... At (laughs) least the... At least May 4th and May 23rd are the same month. Yeah. Yeah. January is a whole separate, like, months earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And like, four months earlier. Yeah. What? Uh-huh. I mean, that definitely puts the story into speculation. It, it, it definitely does. Also, well, I and, and if anyone out there knows, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, I don't have anything that's saying that she was <clears throat> specifically a cargo ship. I have that she was set out to sail for Lima and Peru. I don't know that necessarily that would put her around the Drake Passage. Maybe she just got lost. But every source I found said seven crewmen. And whether or not that includes the wife and the dog, seven crewmen for an area like that doesn't sound like enough to me. Especially if you think about it, you have to do things in shifts. That's why there's a captain and a first mate. And then you've got seconds to all the other deckhands as well too you have to have especially if it's a big i mean a schooner's not super big it's not a it's not a brig it's not a massive cargo ship but schooners are long they're They're, tiny ships they're not tiny but they're long they're long ships but especially if you're going to be in around the south of south america it's going to be cold and you're in a wooden ship things are going to freeze you're going to need additional men you i don't think you could properly sail a ship in and around that area with only seven crew members. Yeah. But if anyone out there knows, correct us. If we're, if we're wrong, feel free to let us know. It just doesn't seem plausible to me. I know very or at least about smart. ships, so. <laughs> or at least smart. <laughs> <laughs> but our last ship that we have is definitely one that most people have probably heard of. Probably the most noted Abandoned ship. Now, this one we know to be true. There's no speculation about whether or not she existed. She existed. She definitely existed. And this would be the The Mary Mary Celeste. Celeste. In 1872, the Mary Celeste left port from New York City, with their destination being Italy. Genoa, Genoa. yeah. This one, Mary Celeste was a cargo ship. Yeah, she was. She was carrying alcohol. Denatured alcohol. Denatured and alcohol. And 1,700 barrels of denatured alcohol. Let's carry some large amounts of ba- barrels. <laughs> However, she, she left port, and eight days after their departure from the New York City port, they were actually discovered floating along the Azores, which are islands under Portu- Portuguese rule. And in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And by this point, she should have already made land in Genoa. Correct. She had been found on December 5th, 1872. So take that and then minus five days. So she, the, the Mary Celeste had set sail on November 7th. On November 7th? Okay. That was, all right, so interesting. I got sources varied because you can't leave on November 7th and be found a month later. And you should have already arrived in eight days before. So that's a little discrepancy right there. But anyway, the British brig De Gracia had found her floating 400 miles east of the Azores. And they sent a boarding party onto the Mary Celeste and found no one on board. It was empty. It was abandoned. It was completely abandoned. There was not a single soul on board the Mary Celeste. And they found... Charts. Cargo. They found all the charts, the log books, the cargo. There was the, the cargo was all still there. The the quarters were all still in the same state. It should have been all the clothing and everything that the crewmen had brought with them were still on board. Only the thing missing was one lifeboat. There were two. Usually ships have pumps to help to help siphon out the siphon water. out the, the the build water essentially to siphon out the water so it doesn't flood. And most ships usually have at least two. This one had two, but one of them had become cracked or disabled, so they actually disassembled it. broken. Right. And they found three feet of water down the hull, and nine of the 1,700 barrels were empty. And we'll get into that in a little bit. And they also found food 
that would have lasted the crew, a crew of 10, six for months. an additional six months. Yeah. Which is more than enough food to get to Genoa and back. Oh, yeah. Like, they wouldn't have needed to even get well, anything out of Genoa, Italy, to restock the ship for food-wise. Right, even if it takes you two months to get there and two months back. You have so, more than enough food on board. Correct. And the crew itself... No one knows what happened. No, and we'll get to theories in that in a little bit. Ooh. But there are some theories that, in terms of what happened to the crew, it was like mutiny, pirates, sea monsters, even water spouts were thrown out. Lots of different stories. Mm-hmm. And so there were seven crew members, Captain Benjamin Spooner Briggs, his wife, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia, were on board at the time that she set sail. And the... Captain of the DeGracia was Captain uh, Morehouse. Captain Morehouse. It's actually said that him and Captain Briggs were actually friends. Yeah. And so I've got questions about that, which I'll bring up later. But it's interesting because Captain Briggs is also known to have been a very... He was a seasoned captain. A seasoned captain. Very good at his job. Mm-hmm. And for him to abandon ship... And it must have been a good reason. And we'll get into that as well, too. Yeah, you can't, you don't just abandon your ship. That's, especially when you've got your wife and two-year-old child aboard. That's like your last resort. Exactly. Kind of like the idea of the captain goes down with the ship kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, but the ship didn't go down. Exactly. It's like, so why is it abandoned? Right. So what happened with the Mary Celeste is the DeGracia sailed her 300 miles. So they split up their crew aboard ship. So half went to the Mary Celeste and half stayed on board their ship. And they sailed both ships into the port of Gibraltar, where they, there was an investigation. And the crew of the Gracia actually was up for an insurance claim on the ship because it was abandoned but still had its cargo. But because of thoughts of foul play, other than necessarily on the part of the Gracia, but because of foul play, the insurance company only paid them one-sixth of the worth of the cargo. But after yeah. that, she had been bought and she was continued to use, she was in use for an additional 12 years. Yes. Until her captain at that time decided to use her in an insurance fraud claim <laughs> by running her aground in Haiti. And when he didn't win his claim, he just left her there to rot. Good job. Yeah. I mean, what can you say? But yeah, I mean... In December 18th, 1872, there was an ad, a vice admiralty court meeting to discuss the reward for Captain Morehouse and his crew. And they tried to play off a scenario, which is really interesting. The attorney for the Crown tried to play off a scenario where Captain Briggs was murdered by his crew who had drunk... The denatured alcohol and become obviously drunk and killing Captain Briggs and his family and then abandoned the ship. But according to the statements by the crew, uh, Morehouse and his crew, nothing, there was, there was no struggle. Uh, it, There's it look, no it look, signs of struggle. No signs of struggle. There's no signs of blood. There's no signs of any of the cargo or valuables missing whatsoever. People were saying, oh, it was boarded by pirates. Well, if it was, the valuables were still there. Not, I mean, you're only missing nine barrels out of 1,700, but you got denatured alcohol, which in of itself could be explosive. But that rules out pirates, <laughs> which were a big thing in the Azores at the time. At, or, uh, well, not so much that time. Mostly I did look into it about the Azores, but they had a massive issue with piracy from about the 1,400s through the 1,600s. So at this time, I don't know that piracy was as big as it had previously been, but yeah. still something still There's, going on around that time. It's not like they up and disappeared. They're still in existence to this day. Right. Pir- pirates are still in existence to today. So pirates was still an option, but then they also came up with monsters. There's, a, like, there's always sea monsters. There's always lots of sea monsters. And then <laughs> another rumor was that the because it was alcohol, that the alcoholic vapors, uh, particularly from those nine barrels, had expanded. Uh, the barrels themselves had expanded in the heat of the Azores, causing panic that if they were to explode, they would have blown up the entire ship. But the boarding party never reported any foul smells or alcoholic smells of any kind when they went on board to check things out. I mean, 
it literally makes no sense as to the abandonment of right. the ship. There um, was there was some um, some some people had looked into the source of the nine barrels and found that those nine were actually made with red oak, which was normally barrels at the time were made with white oak, and red oak is actually much more porous. So over time, those specific nine barrels would have leaked out any of the the alcoholic liquid that was in it. Mean. Which is why there's only nine. Nine. Empty, oh, uh, nine empty. And nine empty. Yeah. I did that or was actually drinking, although I can't see that actually being the problem. Right. And then there was also the log, too, which the captain had written about 5 a.m. on the last night that we were aboard the ship. November 25th is what I have. Yes. And which states that they were six miles from the Santa Maria Island, so they were far enough away that they could still see land. Mm-hmm. And six miles isn't all that far away. You and I live about six miles apart. Yeah. It's not that far. It's not ridiculously far, but it's ocean at the same time versus being on land. True. It's also the Atlantic Ocean and the Northern Atlantic Ocean, which is really stormy and choppy. Yay! So, yeah. Choppy, stormy weather and a ghost <laughs> ship. But think of it. Your last log states you were only six miles away from this island, and then when eight days later, your ship was found 400 miles away. Yeah. Unmanned, sailing on your own. That's a lot of travel to do in eight days. Right, and so most people surmise that she couldn't have done it. But not too long ago, in the early, I think, what, 2005 or so, there was a documentarian, her name is Ann McGregor, along with Ocean... Oceanographer Phil Richardson had actually looked into the Mary Celeste Mm -hmm. to actually determine what would have caused Captain Briggs to abandon the ship. Mm -hmm. How, if possible, could she have actually gone from six to 400 miles difference? And they came up with a really interesting conclusion on that. Yeah. I had the, she had a faulty chronometer. There was, there was that. So they use what I believe called the I-codes which is, and that's I-C-O-A-D-S, International Comprehensive Ocean Atmosphere Data Set, which publishes information used to study climate change, so wind speeds, directions, and water temperatures. And the data set actually logs information from, has logged information from 1784 all the way to 2007. So they use these study sets to determine that, yes, the Mary Celeste could have just drifted her way 400 miles east of, of, the, uh, of Santa, Santa Maria Island. But that still didn't answer as to why Captain Briggs would have abandoned the ship. Now, again, they are carrying denatured alcohol, which could be explosive. And also, they were actually able to conclude that Captain Briggs' is chronometer was inaccurate which also yeah. caused him to sail possibly up to 120 miles off course yeah which is a long way off course and mind yeah. you the azores are owned by portugal and you're heading towards portugal you have to go through straight the Gibraltar to get into the mediterranean yes. but it's sort of it's definitely a bit off course and we'll have a map listed as well too and the show notes but you know they're they're off course, and Captain Briggs at this point believed that he should have seen land days before they actually did. Right, which meant that he's obviously confused. He doesn't realize this is a faulty chronometer, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then in addition to that, we have the broken one, the broken pumps. bilge pumps, bilge pumps, yeah, which also again allows to siphon out seawater from the the hull of the ship, and. 1,700 barrels is a lot of cargo. And unfortunately, because one pump was broken, he couldn't determine how much water had gotten into the hull because the cargo area was so full of cargo, he couldn't tell. He, yeah, he couldn't see the amount of bilge water he had, right. basically. And which... so, which, and then in addition to that, Anne McGregor and Phil Richardson were actually able to determine that on the Mary Celeste's previous voyage, she mm-hmm. actually carried coal. And coal is also a bit explosive as well, too, but also coal leaves a lot of debris. Yeah. And although after she had finished that previous voyage, she had been refitted, but it's very probable that coal dust got into either both or one of the pumps, causing it 
to stop working properly, needing to have it disassembled. So now yeah. you're also... You're, you're down a pump. You're down a pump in general. Now you're down a pump due to clogging. Due to simple clogging, you have 1,700 barrels of denatured, possibly explosive alcohol. You can't see how much bilge water is building up inside your ship. And you're confused because your chronometer is not working right, so you're actually not where you should have already been. No matter how good of a captain you are, I'd be very lost too. Right. I mean, you're, you're stuck in the middle of the ocean, no landing in sight, you're thinking you should have already seen land... You have, you're, you're going, what do I do? What do I do? Mm-hmm. You're thinking of every single option that you can think of to, to, to what's the best possible move to make. Right. Which brings about that because of all of these coming together, Captain Briggs and all hands on board, and I would assume a handful of valuables. I mean, it was said that the chronometer, the sex, and the navigation book and even possibly the ship's register, were missing when the DeGracia boarded. The only thing they found was the logbook that stated that they were six miles away from Santa Maria. Mm. And no thing has ever been found as to what, what happened? happened to this lifeboat. And although six miles is not very far away, again, you're in the North Atlantic. It is treacherous waters. Uh, it's in a it's, lifeboat. It, in a lifeboat, it's even worse. And the eighteen hundreds, yeah, in the eighteen hundreds, particularly. But so you may not necessarily have all the proper attire. You're heading towards Italy. It's going to be warm Mediterranean weather, even though you're sailing across the Atlantic. And northern Atlantic is very cold. It's icy. You're also sailing in the the the, the, the winter time. Yeah. So there's all that as well too. But my question is, Captain Morehouse is said to have been friends with Captain Briggs. They'd known each other. They knew each other's families. Yeah. They both lived in, I don't necessarily know the New York area, or at least just sort of that East Coast portion of the New England area. But I I could find no record of Captain Morehouse attempting to locate his friend. Whether they had... Stopped by Santa Maria Island on the way to Gibraltar or on the way back from Gibraltar, I could find nothing. And if that is your friend and you know their family and Captain Briggs left his, I believe Arthur was seven, his son Arthur at home because he was in school, so he didn't come on the trip. You know their children. You know one of them is still left at home. I could find no record. I Captain Morehouse looking for his friend or their family. I found nothing pertaining to Morehouse even stepping on the island of Santa Maria. Me neither. To see if his his friend, if Captain Briggs and his family had even made it. There's no record of it right. that I could find. If there is and you find it, let us know. But, I mean, to leave not only your friend, but to not even try, whether he's your friend or not, and you... And you think six miles? Well, no. I mean, from they the found log. they found her four hundred miles away. I now, know, but you're thinking the log says six miles away. Maybe they abandoned it around then. Maybe I should check the island at some point along my uh, well, I was, shipping right, right, route. Right, and I'm thinking. Well, obviously, you're, you found the ship four hundred miles away from where it last stated it was, and then you sailed her three hundred miles to Gibraltar. But you have to pass back by the Azores on your way back. Yeah. So I would think that you'd attempt to take a a slight detour over to Santa Maria Island to check it out. Now, I did look into it. Santa Maria Island is very small. It's only 37 and a half square miles. It's not very big. And as of 2011 census, it only had... 5,550 people on it. So it's very small. It's a small populated island. But But it it definitely is populated. There's a source of income. There's animals on there. And if they had landed, maybe either the people took them in or killed them. It could they could go either way depending on what Possibly. it's like. But I mean it's honestly been... they probably would have taken them in as they were on their way to Portugal anyway and the Azores at, are under Portuguese At this time the, the Azores have been under Portuguese rule 
since officially in the 1400s, they were first sighted by Portuguese sailors in 1279, but didn't come under Portuguese rule until 1427. And then they started populating it with cattle and people and various animals around 1432. But by this point, it's 1870s. It's already been populated, and you're on your way to to Genoa, Italy. Yeah. It's Portugal. It's going to be a place that you can take refuge. Mm-hmm. So they probably would have welcomed them, figured out a way to possibly get them back home. It's not like they, they have to have uh, people and ships coming in and out of their own port of Santa Maria because you need food. It's a tiny island. And you need trade at this time. They could have figured out a way to get them either into Europe, where they could have taken another ship back, back to New York City at some point. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing. There's literally nothing. Which leads me to believe that if they had sailed out for Santa Maria Island, if it was even Santa Maria Island that they had were six miles away from because if they had a broken chronometer and Captain Briggs was off course, maybe they thought it was Santa Maria Island. Who knows? Again, yeah. still no records of anyone looking for this this crew. crew. But again, treacherous, cold, freezing winter waters in the North Atlantic. It's highly likely that it probably capsized. You have ten people. I don't know how big this lifeboat specifically was. I don't know its no, weight capacity. No. I don't know that you could necessarily comfortably fit. 10 people on it. And in addition to that, if you're getting off of even a, a, a lifeboat that could hold five people and you're sailing towards the island, even if you know that island is populated, I would think you would take some essentials, food and drink specifically, and some clothing attire at the very least. Yeah. Now we, we have, again, the sextant, the register, the notebooks, the chronometer, all your navigation tools were missing. Mm-hmm. And yet... It is said that nothing else was missing from any of the other decks of the ship. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look into the ship's history, too, it's also had a, a streak of unlucky yeah. encounters. Uh, the, ship, the ship was originally named the Amazon, actually. It only got its name, the Mary Celeste, later on. And the first captain of the Amazon became ill and died. And there's no explanation as to why. And again, after that, it then collided with another ship in the English Channel. So the ship named the Amazon has a captain. Captain grows ill, dies. No one else, just captain dies. Random act, I don't know. And then he, the ship collides on another voyage. And luckily the ship doesn't sink. I don't know if that's luckily or not, but the ship doesn't sink. And they end up get uh, taking the ship back, repairing it, obviously, and then renaming it. And that's when it was renamed the Mary Celeste. And I'm assuming that they renamed it in the hopes that renaming it might give it better luck. However, it doesn't seem it did. No. I mean, the ship is still... I, I, the sh- I mean, the last time the ship was seen, she was ran aground for <laughs> absolutely no reason basically insurance fraud that ended up failing fraud. yes i mean this poor ship has gone through a lot yeah. i'm surprised that she went through 12 years that i didn't find anything else after no, no. well i mean and the only reason we really know about it is because of sir arthur conan doyle so yes. this happened in 1872 and six years it, later it wasn't, yeah, it, but it wasn't really well known, but it wasn't until 1884. Yeah, six that years later. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, now again, this is prior to Sherlock Holmes, which if I remember correctly, was published, first published in 1887. So Conan Doyle had still started his writing career by then. He was usually writing short stories, mm-hmm. uh, poetries. I don't know if he really started writing it about theories at this point, but that's a later topic. But he had written he published a story called J. Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement, which set off a series of theories as to the fate of the crew of the Mary Celeste. And his story was so sensationalized. Keep in mind, it's 1884. But his theory that he posited was that it was a mutiny 
by a previous, a vengeful slave, not just a previous slave, a vengeful slave came upon the ship and killed all hands aboard. And then in addition, back in 1935, there was actually a Bela Lugosi movie that, and because I believe it was a popular theory that it was a mutiny on board, but rather than Conan Doyle's story of a vengeful slave, the Bela Lugosi movie had their, 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 their the, the crew, well, the, their, their theory was that it was a homicidal sailor who went and killed all hands aboard. Ooh, yay. But, at, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the one where we're like, we know this is real. We know this actually happened. We know what we happened to the ship. We just don't know what happened to the people on the ship. And even one of my thoughts is that sometimes when you have ships doing reconnaissance, so particularly back then, now much, probably much more for larger ships, but sometimes when you send out a lifeboat, you don't, especially if you're in treacherous waters, you're going to have the lifeboat tied to the ship so that you aren't able to lose the lifeboat or all the hands on the sh- on the lifeboat. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that Captain Briggs and all hands on the lifeboat were having themselves essentially being towed by the ship because he was concerned that it might explode or for other reasons so that they were being towed. They were far enough away from it in case something were to happen, but they were being pulled along and possibly even that the rope that they were attached to Severed. Severed in some way, and then they capsized or got caught up in a storm, or who knows? Who knows? They could be at the bottom of the ocean for all we know. Anyone else got theories? Feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. But that'll be all for today's episode of The History Explains It All. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher... Google Play, Spotify. Most places that you can find your podcast. Mm-hmm. And you can also find us on Facebook, on our History Explains It All Facebook page. We'll have an Instagram up as well. Yes. And you can also email us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Yes. Skip out the it part because it was too long. <laughs> it was just too long. <laughs> so we just made it historyexplainsall at gmail.com. And all of our searches and show notes, as well as any links to pictures and things and timelines, will all be on our Facebook page. They will go up on the same day as they are on the same day as this podcast does. And we hope to see you next time on the History Explains It All as we trek through history. Bye. Bye bye.